Good morning and welcome to Point of View on WNUA 95.5 FM Chicago. I'm Charlie Myerson. Our guest this time out has been a senior advisor to three presidents, twice a candidate for the Republican nomination for president. He's a political columnist you may know best from his appearances on the Capital Gang, McLaughlin Group, and Crossfire TV shows. And he's out now with his fourth book, a prescription for saving the American jobs that he says are in jeopardy from the global economy. What the taxes on the goods entering the country and cut the taxes on American workers and American families. The jobs will come home, the factories will come home, the standard of living will go up, and the working class people will be back on that yellow brick road to the American dream. Buchananism. It's Pat Buchanan and his new book is The Great Betrayal. How American sovereignty and social justice are being sacrificed to the gods of the global economy. Thank you for coming. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me on, Charlie. What do you mean by the gods of the global economy? Who are they? Well, the I think the, the I have a chapter in the book entitled the uh, the uh, it's you know the name even the master uh, masters of the universe. It's taken from Tom Wolfe, and these are the individuals who run the transnational corporations, which used to be multinational and which used to be American corporations. These are now individuals who basically no longer have any allegiance to country or to loyalty to workers. And they see themselves as citizens of a new world and basically pioneers. And the companies they head up are busily shutting down factories and plants in America because, frankly, their American workers cost too much. And their American workers have too many benefits and their American workers are too free to walk out when they want to. And these folks like more compliant workers who earn less. And so they've been moving their factories all over the world. And as a consequence, we're deindustrializing America, and we're de-Americanizing our industries. Let's put some names on these these entities, mm-hmm. uh, individuals or and corporations. Who are you talking about? Well, among let's take, others, uh, let's take the um, the gentleman Condit that heads Boeing. He said, in the next twenty years, we want to be considered a global corporation. He's moved one factory, a major factory, over to China. General Motors itself, John Smith, uh, they want to be known as a global corporation. I understand there's not to be another auto plant built in North America. They're building them in Argentina and Thailand and Poland and China. And I think if you take a look at many of these individuals mentioned in my book, Charlie, in that chapter, The Masters of the Universe, you will see they just do not want to be considered Americans again. They don't want their companies to be considered American companies. They call themselves transnational now. It's not even multinational. The difference being that a transnational has no country. It is a corporation which sort of swims around in the global economy like a shark swimming in the ocean, which has to eat and swim or it sinks to the bottom and dies. You're a big convert. This is a major philosophical change for you. You described yourself uh, once upon a time as the biggest free trader in the White House next to Ronald Reagan. Uh, I'll tell you, I began to have doubts even before that, but I was a committed free trader in Ronald Reagan's White House. Frankly, I went out and and took a look at what was happening in the country to where my mother grew up in the Mon Valley of western Pennsylvania, where all the... uh, I used to go there after World War II and stay with my grandmother while my parents went on vacation. And uh, you see, I remember that iron, coal, steel community is tremendously dynamic. And my uncle told me at one convention, he said, Pat, why are you for free trade? It's killing the Mon Valley. And uh, people have been leaving the Mon Valley. The valley's been dying. And this was the industrial heartland of America. And so as you go around the country, you see the Mahoning River. You can see for 30 miles up and down the river the blackened ruins of a dead civilization. One of those big plants, Jones and Laughlin, I saw in the 96 campaign. 65,000 Americans worked in there during World War II. 
and now it looks like it looks like something you'd see out of a dead civilization or a bombed out country. Shelley grew up in Detroit. It was a town of two million. It was the most it was the greatest industrial center, I think, in the universe. People came all over the world to Motown to see how the Americans did it, how we'd won World War II with our manufacturing ability. Go up there now to Detroit. It looks like Beirut. Well, I grew up in Detroit, too, and I've, I've been back there a number of times over the last two, three decades. Uh, many, many people in my family were supported by the industry for years, but those American cars of the 70s and 80s, early 80s, they were junk. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we still be getting junk if there had not been a challenge to the auto industry and its quality standards uh, and price standards from, from abroad? No, because I think America's got a big enough economy so that we can have a challenge from within. You're right about a lot of the American cars made back then. The arrogance of the unions, the arrogance of management, the belief that we're going to be on top forever, and even the belief that imports don't make any difference. I have no problem, Charles, with imports. But what I do think that every imported car should carry in its cost the same taxes for American defense and for Social Security and Medicare as an American car built in the United States. I would put that tax on in the form of a tariff. Secondly, I would tell the foreign companies, the Japanese companies, who built outstanding cars in the 80s and 90s where they built junk in the 50s, I would tell them, look, if you want to move your factory and bring your technology to America and bring your ideas and your management prescriptions and build your plant here and you beat Americans on their own playing field, you win. That way American consumers can buy their Toyotas made in the USA or they can buy a Ford made in the USA. American consumers would have the same opportunity to buy the quality products, but American workers would get all of the jobs. That's what Lincoln said, you know. And Lincoln and the Republicans in the old days were really the great economic nationalists. Lincoln said, you know, when I buy an imported product, I get the product, but somebody else gets my money. When I buy something made in the USA, we get the goods and we get the money both. And it's a very simple formula. It is straight Adam Smith. It's Point of View on WNUA 95.5. Our guest is Pat Buchanan, whose new book is The Great Betrayal, How American Sovereignty and Social Justice Are Being Sacrificed to the Gods of the Global Economy. Isn't that kind of a selfish position? Americans get the goods. Americans get the money. There are people in other parts of the world. I'm playing devil's advocate here, of mm-hmm. course. In other parts of the world who, who, who need jobs and need money and need food for their families as much and in some cases more than Americans do. Isn't that a selfish well, perspective very, for Americans to take? Thank you. But the, the st- American statesmen are responsible for the American economy and the American nation. And the primary objective of an American economy is the highest standard of living on earth for the American people. Now, we used to have that. We had three or four times the income of Europeans who were second. Uh, What I see happening right now is a betrayal of these workers. Their real standard of living has gone down. Now, I I mean, I have enormous sympathy for folks in Indonesia and Mexico and all over the world, but you cannot force an American worker to compete head-on with somebody making 30 cents an hour or 50 cents an hour or $2 an hour because you're driving down his standard of living. You're forcing his wife out of the home where she's got little kids there into the labor market, and that is injustice. Now, what I believe is the America, if we have the most dynamic economy in the world and Americans are the highest paid in the world, those American dollars, whether they're tourist dollars or whether defense dollars or whether Americans want to go abroad and buy things from there, they can buy them. But what we got to get going first, we got to take care of your own family first, Charles, before you go across town and help the homeless people on the other side of town. Well, the, you know, part of the other side of the argument is that we do... Some people will argue, uh, do Americans a service 
by allowing these foreign goods into this country, by making it possible for Americans of meager income to buy goods at what once upon a time might have been considered dirt cheap prices. VCRs for 150 bucks, TV sets, telephones. I mean, there are all of these imported electronics products, for instance, which I think, you know, a lot of people will say demonstrably add to the standard of living for Americans in many ways. Those things would not be accessible to some of the poorest families in this country if it weren't for these foreign imports, these these cheap goods. I disagree entirely because history contradicts that. Between 1865 and 1913, we had the highest tariff wall in American history, 40 to 50 percent, the McKinley tariff, uh, uh, the Dingley tariff, the Merrill tariffs. Uh, and what happened in those years, Charles? Not only did the American standard of living soar above all other countries, average growth each year, even though we had a couple of recessions like 93 and 07, was 4% a year, industrial growth 4.5% a year, imports fell to 4% of GDP, prices fell by 50% between the end of the Civil War and the beginning of World War I. That shows that, that a healthy Hamiltonian policy that protects American labor, America's manufacturing base, is the most efficient, cost-effective system you can run on Earth. What I'm saying is that by suddenly moving your plants abroad and getting a couple of dollars off a price now, you're selling out your country and your workers, and you're selling off your family estate, and that's something you can only do once. After all your manufacturing is gone, Charles, you will find out that the people over there don't want those little pieces of paper you exchange for their automobiles and uh, VCRs, those little pieces of paper called dollars, and they suddenly become worth less and less and less. Great Britain used to have the 25% of the world's manufacturing. It's now got 3%, and the per capita income, I believe, in Singapore exceeds that of Great Britain. Britain's got an economy the size of Italy now. You can do that for a long time, but you, are, you ought to know that you're marching downhill. You're like, not like the first-generation Rockefeller. You're like the fourth-generation Rockefeller. Point of view on WNUA 95.5. Charlie Myerson here talking to former presidential candidate Pat Buchanan out with a new book called The Great Betrayal. A news item across uh, the wires last month, the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank study suggesting that things, by some measures, are a lot cheaper now than they were, say, in the 50s when weighed against wages. Mm-hmm. Half a gallon of gas in the 50s, the equivalent of 16 minutes of work by the average fact, uh, factory worker. Uh, it's uh, substantially less now. A car took 1,600 hours of work, 300 hours of work more than the figure now. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say about numbers oh, like listen, that? listen, there's no doubt. Look, I am not against technological change in America, and we don't want to stop technological change. But again, let's go back, and, and I don't deny those. Frankly, I think gasoline, if it's a dollar a gallon, I remember you know, putting four gallons in a tank or five gallons in it for one buck. But I think other, uh, the, the dollars, frankly, it is cheaper. Let's yeah, say that. Oil and gas are cheaper. It cheaper was in the 1950s. It's historic lows. Of course, now we only got about five miles a gallon in those That's cars right. anyhow. Because a gallon <laughs> goes farther, it's cheaper now, and weighed against wages and inflation and okay. everything else. Uh, now, your point is, though, that technological change is not bad. But in the kind of economic system I'm talking about, you would still get the benefits of technological change. If you got robots moving those TV cameras around that now move around the floors <laughs> and come at me with nobody behind them. But all I want is Americans making the robots, Americans making the cameras. That's another new industry. These things mean uh, uh, our problem is, as I say, that we consume the same number of, of, of industrial goods and manufacturing goods even more than we ever did. We just don't make them here. And we can make them here and they get cheaper and cheaper if Americans, I mean, if you got this huge market working to reduce prices. 
practical steps. What do you want to do? How do you want to fix what you see as this major threat to the American Well, economy? let me take the two predatory traders, China and Japan. China buys $12 billion a year from the United States, and it sells us $62 billion. It buys one-tenth of one percent of our GDP, and we buy 7% of its GDP. We provide all of its cash reserves. In other words, China is utterly dependent on the United States. First thing I would call them up and I'd say, you got a 40% tariff and tax on American goods entering the country. Get rid of it. And I'm talking about next week. And if you don't get rid of it, you're going to get a 40% tariff and tax on Chinese goods entering the United States. Secondly, since we buy all your goods and we're responsible for your growth, I don't want to hear about you guys buying Airbus. I want you to be buying Boeing jets. And I want you to open markets to this American agriculture. We can feed your country far more cheaply than a lot that's going on now. I want you to buy from the United States of America. So in other words, stop talking free trade nonsense with people that don't believe remotely in it and talk a tough reciprocal trade agreement between the United States of America and China. So you want more free trade between the U.S. and its partners, but you want the free trade to go both ways. I would, with China, what I would say is, look, I would first off, I would, I would want to make sure that the United high-tech items and things like that we build here. And so you put a tariff on some of the Chinese goods, use that to cut taxes on American goods. But what I'm saying is, let's not worship at this free trade, whatever happens, our markets are open. I don't care what you do, we're going to keep our markets open. Sit down and realize we are in a tough negotiation that trade is not simply like you and me going down and buying something to gas station or at the 7-Eleven. Free trade is rival nations in conflict with one another as well. And cut the best deal we can for the United States of America. What you need, the guy you need doing these trade deals is somebody like George Meany. They understand what's right for American workers. And they, they want to export too. And they'll accept imports. But they want the best deal for the United States and the American worker. If you go in with that attitude, it's what's best for America, the worker and the manufacturing base in the country, you'll come out with a better deal. You know, you sound an awful lot like a Democrat now. Well, labor, I sound about? like I sound like <laughs> Bill McKinley, and he got a lot of good he got a lot of good votes from folks that uh, folks that uh, quite frankly were working class folks. Republicans in that era used to get all these Democrats. They're today's Democrats. These working people. One of your proposals sounds uh, like a, a, a plan that we've heard surface here in Chicago on a local level and nationwide from from liberals, people that you would have called liberals, Democrats. This this concept of a family or living wage guarantee for for low income Americans. How would you do that? Legislatively, uh, no, morally, you, you don't do it legislative. We do it the way we did it. When I grew up, uh, my father had nine kids. He worked as an accountant, and my mother was at home, and he was able to sustain and support us. The global free trade economy puts a premium on the kind of efficiency which means we get rid of high-paid workers and hire the lowest-paid workers. It is a race to the bottom. And the people who suffer in something like this are first-world workers who have good pay, good benefits, good jobs. I'm not saying they do everything right in their unions, but you do not sell them down the river and sell their jobs out because you're in an argument with them. So how are you going to do it? You can use, I mean, the same economic system that enabled us to grow to this. It's a Hamiltonian system. You use tariffs. You shift the burden of taxation off of individual families and put it on communist Chinese goods and Japanese goods entering the country and European goods entering the country and manufactured goods made by Nike, which moves its factory to Indonesia and moves it out of America. Put the taxes on the goods entering the country and cut the taxes on American workers and American families. The jobs will come home. The factories will come home. The standard of living will go up and the working class people will be back on that yellow brick road to the American dream. Buchananism. 
That's the way, Charlie. Our guest's voice, of course, will sound familiar to you because he's twice been a candidate for president of the United States. Pat Buchanan, his new book is The Great Betrayal. Is the Republican Party, as some have speculated recently, in danger of losing the high ground on economic issues to the Democrats? Sure it is. It's uh, What are we talking about? A $516 billion tax on working class folks because they happen to like cigarettes and we don't like them? I mean, that's Republican conservative principle. We're supposed to be against taxes. I mean, read my lips. Isn't that right, Charlie? Read my lips. No new taxes. $516 billion in taxes. How do you square that with that promise? What are we doing? You know, negotiating $18 billion in foreign aid for the IMF so they can bail out Chase Manhattan's stupid investments in Indonesia? Are the Democrats becoming the party of responsible fiscal behavior? Are they, I mean, is that a risk that the Republican Party is running at this point? Well, it is a risk they're running because Bill Clinton is an effective politician. And Bill Clinton will grab any issue the Republicans leave lying around. He's very opportunistic in that sense. And I think the Republicans better wake up. And, and they've given away an awful lot to Clinton. And they better not give away the tax issue and the small government issue. Are, they, are the Republicans, uh, you think, a little too preoccupied with some of the moral issues? Abortion, for instance? Well, I don't think you can be too pre- preoccupied with the, the slaughter of 35 million unborn kids, children, since 1973. It ought to be on our minds constantly. It is the greatest, my judgment, the greatest crime in the history of this nation. It's the stain on American honor, and it's an awful situation. But it's and splitting the Republican Party. I don't give a damn if it's splitting the Republican Party, Charlie. It's the wrong thing. I don't know if you can say damn on this radio station. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> well, don't bleep it out. They'll think I said something I else. I will not. I will not bleep <laughs> it out. We'll go on. We'll find out. I'll, I'll bear right. the, uh, the brunt of this. House Speaker Gingrich has floated the prospect uh, in the last few days of letting Great Britain into the NAFTA alliance. What do you think of that? That's an idea that I had uh, 10 or 15 years ago. I I mean, there there is a country, for example, where regulations are comparable to ours, uh, where wages are pretty comparable to ours, where the language is common, the heritage and history are common. I think that is an excellent idea. I'm not against a free trade zone uh, where you're not putting Americans in competition with people making 50 cents an hour. In other words, I would say it is much more of a compatible fit with an American economy our British cousins than, uh, than, than Mexico is. And it's not because I don't like Mexican folks. It's simply because the extraordinary differences in culture and regulation and wages with Mexico make that an uneven, uneven tilt. And so all your factories simply will go down to Mexico. They won't all go to Britain. A lot of them will come from Britain right to here. Would you zap NAFTA? No, you can't zap NAFTA because, you know, a lot of things have happened and decisions have been made and people have invested down there. And you don't destroy somebody's investment because they did it in good faith based on laws that existed at the time. But what you got to say, one example, Mexico ex- exports now 10 times as many automobiles to us as we export to Mexico. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be. We're just shipping our autos factory down there. So I think what you'd have to say is, look, we're going to put a quota on cars coming in from Mexico roughly equal to this year's total. In other words, what you got of the auto industry, you got, but you're not getting any more. And so we got a special relationship with Mexico uh, that common border, and we got a bleeding border down there. And so we got to deal with that as a security problem, a foreign policy problem, as well as an economic problem. But, I mean, if you're talking Asia, for example, uh, you know, I wouldn't let the Koreans, who are building to a capacity of 5 million cars, and to send them here, I wouldn't let them take over America's auto industry. I'd put a good tariff on uh, imported cars and uh, every one of them. Are you on the Internet? Um, no, my wife's on the Internet. I've got it set up, but I've not been able to figure <laughs> out how to get into it, Charlie. Do you see a role for that in your economic 
plans? Oh, I've got. Uh, I don't think the, we should try to put restrictions on uh, on technology. It'd be silly to try. And this this I believe in communication with the whole world, and and I believe in commun. This is a tremendous thing, and it can be a wonderful thing. And I regret all the pornographic garbage that's on there. That's apparently the big seller on there. But it's and, and there's no sense trying to regulate or control that, in my judgment, or tax it. Uh, my point is that you can handle things with a traditional tariff on manufactured goods which come over this across the borders in huge ships. You can count those. You don't need an intrusive tax system to deal with them. But you don't want people running around taxing your uh, taxing your email. Okay. Are you going to run for the presidency? Uh, I don't know, Charlie. I haven't made my made up my mind. I probably will make it up in. Uh, not until after the fall election or until the spring of next year. What factors will influence your decision? Um, whether you can win the whole thing. I mean, for me to win the, uh, the uh, election, I would have to basically capture the conservative movement from the present conservative establishment, which I think has gone over to the other side. You would have to capture the Republican Party, which is not enthusiastic in the establishment level about me. Then you have to capture a country. Uh, against the uh, uh, United Establishment hostility, corporate, media, uh, political, and otherwise. And it's a very daunting exercise to think you can do all that. Uh, and you may be able to do it, but unless I believed I could do it all and go all the way through and win the White House, uh, I don't know if I would do it again. Are there candidates whose entry into the race would persuade you that you shouldn't run? No. I, don't, I can't think of any candidate... Uh, I mean, if I would take on the, if you take on the president of the United States in ten weeks on a gamble, uh, there's nobody going to run you out. Any regrets about the last two campaigns you ran? If you do it again, will you do anything differently? Probably uh, not hoist so many guns over my head in Arizona. <laughs> Our guest on Point of View on WNUA 95.5 has been Pat Buchanan. His book is The Great Betrayal, How American Sovereignty and Social Justice Are Being Sacrificed to the Gods of the Global Economy. 2295 from Little Brown. Mr. Buchanan has autographed this copy of the book, and we will send it to the first listener to email us a pledge for $25 to the WNUA Cares for Kids Foundation. You can email us at wnuanews at aol.com. You'll hear that address repeated as the credits roll. I'm Charlie Myerson. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much, Charlie. I've enjoyed it.